I've heard that there's a Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. Well, I think we're living in pretty interesting times. And I have reflected on and wondered what does it mean to curse someone by saying, oh, may you live in interesting times. And I think that for many people living in times of tumultuous change and great uh, political and economic and personal and spiritual uh, transitions or transformations is very challenging. It's very destabilizing. It can provoke a great deal of insecurity, uh, fear, uh, reactivity. And in some ways, the, it, it is clearly apparent that there are powerful forces afoot in the world that exert a tremendous uh, conditioning influence on our lives. And try as we might, with as much uh, aspiration, interest, energy, determination, sometimes those forces are overwhelming. And we are only left to accommodate them. So when the forces at afoot in the world are so apparent and so powerful and so um, unpredictable, we see in some ways how not really powerless, but how much we are a product of our conditioning, our environment, and forces outside of ourself. Now we all wish for as much pleasure, security, praise, uh, comfort as we can get in life. And we try as we can to avoid discomfort and insecurity and vulnerability and being a kind of a pawn in anyone else's game. But even though we recognize that this, this is the way it is, and we can see that quite deeply, sometimes just sitting with our own mind and body, we can see how this is true. And even though we know it, and we agree to it, and we can confirm it in our own life experiences, it doesn't, or just that knowledge doesn't inoculate us from struggling and suffering because of conditions outside of our control. We know it, and we still get caught, and we still resist the way things are. This is a partial statement of the Buddha's first noble truth of dukkha. As good as it gets, sometimes is pretty challenging. George Dreyfus, a Buddhist scholar, says that happiness 
is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but it is a sense of well-being. The challenge for us who wish to awaken, to be free of suffering, to live with an open, uh, peaceful heart, the challenge for us is to establish a life of well-being in the midst of this interesting time. So to free ourselves from this curse, we each must cultivate the qualities of heart which will allow us to withstand the inevitable consequences of the unfolding conditions ahead of us. We could say that contingency plans for the trouble ahead are necessary. And what, we might ask, did the Buddha offer as contingency plans for the trouble ahead? Well, think just for a minute of those people in your life, acquaintances or neighbors or family members or, or even historical figures that are living today or that you have uh, memory of or know the history of. Think of those human beings that you would consider to be a good human being. Someone who has a quality or qualities of really humanness that you recognize and is kind of maybe universally recognized. And you might think of certainly Jesus, historical figure who just uh, had a very loving heart. Or you might think of Nelson Mandela in our own time who was extraordinarily patient for 25 or nearly 30 years in prison. Or Aung San Suu Kyi today who is just a beacon of hope and uh, truth-telling for the people of Burma. Or maybe you just have a mentor, a teacher, a friend, someone who's kind, uh, understanding, patient, generous. These qualities of any of these human beings are universal. We recognize them across cultures, across time, within ourselves, within others, and we can appreciate them. When the mind is purified of self-absorption, purified of aversion, purified of confusion or delusion, these are the kinds of qualities and these are the kinds of people that we see. We could say that these are the qualities of a good human being. Kindness, patience, truthfulness, generosity, understanding, love, compassion. And in the Theravada teachings of the Buddhist, the Buddha, there are ten of these qualities 
that are called the uh, paramis, or the perfections, or the purification of the mind, when the mind is purified of greed, hatred, and delusion. And we have been speaking about them a lot during this retreat. Joseph spoke last night about loving-kindness, one of these universal qualities of a good human being. Kamala spoke earlier about the practice of generosity and living ethically, two other qualities of a good human being in any culture. All of our efforts to develop understanding, effort in understanding being other qualities that are recognized around the world throughout history as useful, necessary, the qualities of good people. These qualities are not so far from us. And we know from our own experience that when our own life is troubled, challenged, uh, unstable, that it is not so much stuff out there, although that helps, and others out there, although we're very grateful and appreciative. In large part, it's the the qualities within our own heart that allow us to and allow us to recognize and to face and to come to some resolution with these conditions in our life that if we had our choice we wouldn't have to deal with but we do it is said that the bodhisattva perfected these qualities in order to become a Buddha that had the power to teach others and to have those teachings available, well, to us, 2,500 years later. And when I say that the Bodhisattva perfected these qualities, what I mean is that these qualities of heart were the default setting of the Bodhisattva's mind or the Buddha's mind, meaning kindness, generosity, truthfulness, patience, was the first response of the mind to ordinary and challenging situations. We might just look at your own life and, and consider when you get put in unpleasant conditions, challenging situation, what's your first response? Reactivity and defensiveness and anger and blame and judgment is not absent from my mind. And we see it. What would it take to have as a, an automatic response of the mind to these ordinary and challenging situations. What would it take to have patience, generosity, loving-kindness, equanimity, understanding come to the forefront of the mind first? We recognize that these qualities of mind, the paramis, 
reside as a potential within our own mind. And we all have some experience and some commitment to being generous and being truthful and being understanding. So we have these qualities inherent within us, but as we know, they may not yet be fully developed. But we see as examples human beings who have developed these qualities. We know it's possible and the potential is within us, but it takes practice. And even though they are not yet developed, we can hear about them, we can have the knowledge of them, we can understand that they can be developed in our own heart. And if we acquire the skillful means and we're persistent with skilled guidance, even on a nine-day retreat like this, we can see that slowly but surely, with patience and persistence, the mind begins to change. Well, this is, the evidence is undeniable. And even in a nine-day retreat, we can see some shift in the mind. Imagine a lifetime of such change. Incrementally. Now, I didn't say a lifetime retreat, <laughs> but a lifetime of a commitment to the truth, a commitment to awareness, a commitment to patience, a commitment to understanding, a commitment to generosity. It's easy to see that in time, the challenges that we face in our life would be not so threatening. You know, there's some understanding that whatever it is, as bad as it gets, it can be dealt with. It can be dealt with. Well, that knowledge that we have of our own capacity is just invaluable. And no one can give it to you. You can't buy it. You can't read it in a book. You can only develop it in your own heart by looking at the conditions of life and finding a way as best you can, moment by moment, with awareness and understanding and patience, how to navigate a skillful response rather than an habitual reaction. When we identify these qualities of mind, the paramis, generosity, etc., let me see which ones I've missed. Have I mentioned renunciation yet? No. Renunciation, which means living simply with just enough. Uh, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, loving kindness. Let me ask you, are these qualities Buddhist? Are they Christian? Are they Jewish? Are they Muslim? Are they Hindu? Are they... Well, it's clear that they're just human qualities, isn't it? Are they remote, distant, exotic, or esoteric? No. They're rather common, actually. What makes them so 
special in our lives is not because they're Buddhist or exotic, but that they're just ordinary and they're widely recognized for the value that they are, that they have. So, while we recognize these qualities as good human, the qualities of a good human being, we may not yet have made the development of them a personal choice. It's good for Nelson Mandela to be patient. It's good for Aung San Ji to have a commitment to the truth. It's good for Jesus to be so loving of very difficult people. But can we make that decision? Can we see the value of making such a decision in our own life? It's not easy, is it? To think that we would try to live as loving, as understanding, as patient, as tolerant, as we know is possible. So it takes some reflection. We need to think about just what this means to us, to our life, how our life might change, and what it would mean to the comfort of our cultural and family and personal conditioning. It's not always apparent that responding with these qualities of mind or these qualities of heart is going to lead to happiness. It's difficult to tell the truth all the time. I know if I asked you, have you made a commitment to the truth, to always speak the truth, it's not easy to say yes. But if I asked you, are you a liar? It's also not easy to say yes. And for many of us, much of the time, we fall in between a commitment to one or the other, and when it's convenient, maybe we tell the truth. Well, when it's convenient, maybe we'll practice patience. When it's convenient, but the times may be more challenging than that. And sometimes we're faced with decisions of whether to and how to respond difficult situations. Our practice here is a practice to recognize the way it is. To just recognize the way it is in this body, in this mind, in this environment, in our relationships. As a first step to responding with wisdom and compassion. And it's difficult to just acknowledge to ourselves, this is the way it is. This is what my body feels like. This is what is going on in the mind. This is the reaction, the conditioned reactions that we see in there. And yet, this is, this is the challenge for us in, in awakening and developing these, these qualities of heart. I think all of us would like to be able to walk our talk to be able to say, yes, I, I can be aware and I can accept, I can tolerate and I can respond from a place of purity of the mind. Someone in a check-in today said a really 
interesting thing, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't quite remember. I got the gist of it. He said something like, I want this. I don't want the lifestyle of a retreat, but I want the Dharma. And I think that's what we all want. We don't really want to live a lifestyle like this, but we want the benefit of the qualities of heart and mind that are cultivated and that arise through this practice. It takes a decision of each one of us to make these paramis, these qualities of purity, a personal choice. And if, upon reflection and decision, we see the value and benefit and wish to make that commitment, then we see that the paramis are really all practices. They're all mindfulness practices. They're all practices of letting go. They're all practices of happiness. It's what the Buddha taught in his teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Now, the First Noble Truth, as you know, is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha being pain, also being the insecurity that we feel because things change. And dukkha has a third meaning that the incessant stimulation of the five senses and the mind is just incessant and sometimes oppressive. This is dukkha. The insecurity that we feel is dukkha and obvious physical and mental pain is dukkha. But the Buddha was wise and recognized that this dukkha was caused by craving, holding on, attachment. Third noble truth is that the end of craving and therefore the end of dukkha is possible by fulfilling or developing the fourth noble truth, which is the path to the end of craving, the end of suffering. When I say that the paramis are practices of mindfulness, without awareness of where we are, how we feel, what's going on, we won't see our own suffering, nor the way out, nor what we're holding on to, or how to let go. Mindfulness is the first essential ingredient of any Dharma practice. It's paying attention, being aware remembering. When I say that the paramis are practices of happiness, I mean that when we practice sila, right speech, we purify our speech and behavior, allowing us to live in harmony, greater harmony with one another, this is happiness. This is a kind of happiness, living in harmony. When we purify our mind through the development of awareness, the continuity of awareness, we develop the, the purity of mind, this allows us the joy, the bliss, and the happiness of a tranquil and secluded mind. When we develop the stages of insight and we purify our understanding, this allows us to access peace and the happiness of peace. 
All of these are parami practices. <clears throat> we could say that these practices, because they are so ordinary, are really the practices that we as householders can practice every day, innumerable times. Is there ever a day goes by where you don't have the opportunity to practice patience? Is there ever a day goes by when you don't see an opportunity to practice generosity? Generosity of material goods, generosity of time, generosity of just your presence and being. Is there ever a day goes by when you don't have, aren't called upon to exercise forbearance, just to bear with difficult, unpleasant, challenging, situations, to bring whatever understanding you can to it. We don't need to be sitting on a cushion all day. We don't need to be in retreat all day in order to see the value of these qualities of mind. But we do have to remember that these qualities of mind do offer us an alternative response and to remember them and then to practice them. In, in Burma, where there's a, a very active um, Buddhist culture and uh, with a lot of people practicing meditation, the understanding they have is that householders practice the paramis in order to purify the mind purify our speech behavior, purify our understanding, to prepare the ground for liberating insight through meditation. So for nine or ten months a year, living their lives and their family and work and with their social commitments, these are their practices. And then, as best they can, each year, try to take a month or two of intensive retreat to see the depth of their freedom, to see the depth of their liberation. Because the, qual the quality of the paramis, or the development of the paramis, is the foundation upon which liberation takes place. They prepare the ground of the mind for letting go. They are, in and of themselves, also all letting go practices. If craving and clinging, the second noble truth, is the cause of dukkha, then letting go is the antidote. Letting go is the letting go of the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering, the cause of insecurity, vulnerability, oppression. When I say that these are all letting go practices, what is it that we actually have to let go of? I might also add that these paramis are also practices of the Noble Eightfold Path Factors. Generosity, for example, is a practice of right action. It is the letting go of greed and attachment. Well, it's letting go of things, letting go of beliefs, letting go of obsessions, 
letting go of this little self. Morality, as Kamala spoke about the, the other evening, is the practice of right speech, right action, right livelihood. It is the letting go of transgressively acting out greed, hatred, and delusion. Letting go of some, any self-centered, self-aggrandizing harm to oneself or others. Renunciation. You know, I used to, I used to think there, was, there were not many cultural uh, images of renunciation. We live in a consumerist uh, society. Uh, consuming is good. You know, as they say in the movie, greed is good. <laughs> and it's not clear how renunciation, letting go, could be a virtue in this culture. And then I was reading about the recently retired uh, Supreme Court Justice David Souter. This man lived very simply, just really close to the earth in a very simple, self-contained way. And I, I was just really impressed with how much integrity he had to live a life of simplicity and not buy into the excessive consumption that is so uh, conditioned within our society. But renunciation is the practice of right thought. Joseph mentioned the other night. It's letting go of both material things as well as behaviors, habits, views and opinions. And in its far reach or in its most refined form, it's letting go of the known, conditioned reality. It is letting go in order to access or realize the unconditioned. This is renunciation. Wisdom, another parami, is the practice of right view and right thought. Letting go of delusion, letting go of confusion, letting go of not knowing, knowing wrongly, and naivete. We know more than we sometimes want to admit. We know. And to hang on to that, to pretend we don't know, to pretend that somehow we can get away with not really walking the talk of what we know to be true. This is the practice of wisdom. The practice of the energy parami or the perfection of energy is, of course, the practice of right effort, letting go of sloth, torpor, inertia, letting go of procrastination. Patience, of course, is the practice of right sila, right speech, action, and livelihood. Letting go of impatience and insisting on doing things my way. That's what I've come to see patience is. <laughs> truthfulness, the practice of truthfulness, I think Joseph will speak more about it later in the retreat, is the practice, of course, of right speech. It's letting go of deception, letting go of denial, letting go of delusion. Resolve, or resoluteness, is the practice of right speech, right action, right views, right thoughts. 
letting go of dissipation, wavering, waffling, aimless wandering in our life. Loving kindness, as you know, is a practice of right thought. Letting go of aversion of all forms, hatred, judgment. Equanimity, again, is the practice of right view. Letting go of reactivity and dramatizing ordinary experiences. <laughs> letting go of passivity. Letting go of just, you know, pretending you're not there. It's easy to see what's going to be required of us to develop these contingency plans for the future. <laughs> it, it's a lot. It's a lot. But it's not beyond our reach. It is, in some ways, the qualities of heart and mind that we are developing with all of our effort here. Just gradually and gently developing a commitment to the truth, a commitment to non-delusion, a commitment to right or balanced effort, a commitment to non-reactivity and non-passivity. Gradually, very gradually, but undeniably, these qualities of mind grow from just paying attention. And the understanding of how to grow them grows through our insight. Most of these paramis are pretty common, spoken about a lot, well-known. But I want to speak about one of them tonight that is a little less, well, gets less airtime than all the rest. And that is the Aditana parami. It is the parami of resolve. It said that hundreds of thousands of lifetimes and eons and eons ago, there was an ascetic practicing in then the area of India who had purified his mind to such a degree that if he heard a single word of teaching from a Buddha, he would become fully enlightened. One day, went to town on his alms round, saw that there was a lot of commotion in town, inquired as to what was going on, and was told that the Buddha of the day, Dipankra Buddha, would be coming to town to offer teachings. So, out of curiosity and uh, just wondering what this is all about, he stood by the side of the road, prepared a, uh, a section of the road for the Dipankra Buddha to, to, to enter town. And when he saw Dipankra Buddha coming near him, he was struck by the radiance and just the magnificence of uh, the demeanor of this, this, this being. And he was so moved by his perception of the Buddha that he made a vow, or he articulated to himself his aspiration to someday become a Buddha like Dipankara. Well, Dipankara Buddha, having the qualities of mind that he did, recognized that this ascetic on the side of the road had just made a vow to become a Buddha, thought he'd do a quick scan, checked him out, checked out his karmic records, and said, <laughs> and confirmed to the ascetic Sumedha, indeed, at some future lifetime, you will become a Buddha. 
At that point, the ascetic Sumedha became a bodhisattva, someone who's destined to become a Buddha, having it recognized and acknowledged by a living Buddha. Now, imagine this ascetic, if he just asked for one simple teaching from Dipankar Buddha, could have been fully enlightened, freed, end of, end of job. But instead, he made a vow to become a Buddha, and for hundreds of lifetimes thereafter, lived in all kinds of situations in order to further develop these paramis, to allow himself to be put in the most difficult and challenging situations where he would have to develop stronger paramis, more generosity, more patience, more loving kindness, more effort for hundreds of lifetimes. What sustained him through all those lifetimes to seek that nobility of becoming a Buddha? His mind was resolved. This is the path ahead. The resolution or the resoluteness parami was just fixed at that point. And in that mind, in his mind, that was the direction hereafter. We have this capacity. We have this potential within our own minds to be that resolute. But we should understand that resoluteness is not grim, it's not striving, it's not ambitious, it's not controlling. It is a clarity of direction and a commitment to realigning ourselves with that direction as often as we remember to. When we say it's a Haritana parami, it becomes a parami, or resolve becomes a parami, a perfection, when it is motivated by the wish to develop this quality of mind for the benefit and liberation of all beings, not just for yourself. We can be resolved, but when the motivation is to realize the Dharma or to awaken to the Dharma for the benefit and liberation of all beings, then it becomes a parami practice. In a way, it's making our spiritual aspiration and spiritual maturity a priority in our life. As I mentioned, it doesn't mean that you have to live in a retreat. It doesn't mean you have to go to Asia and ordain. It doesn't mean you've got to live in a cave. It just means you need to remember the paramis as often as you can throughout the day. It's to be constant or to be steadfast in coming back to recognizing the direction we're going. You know the space shuttle that gets sent up and I think it's just recently come back or it's about to. 
uh, they send the space shuttle up and the computers on board program to have it arrive at the space station in a couple of days. Well, it is said that 97% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. 97% of the time, it's off course. And yet, it still arrives at its destination. Why? Well, because of innumerable mid-course corrections. Our practice is just like that. 97% of the time, <laughs> it may feel like it's off course. But when we recognize that and remember the direction we have resolved to go in our life, we're back on track. That's not grim. That's not ambitious. That's just remembering. Being mindfully aware of the commitment we make to ourselves, the resolve, the appreciation of the direction towards fulfilling Dharma. The Buddha said there are these four resolves. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom, should preserve the truth, should cultivate generosity, and should train in peace. When we set our mind on a course with a determination or a resoluteness to follow it and to reconnect with that direction, it guides us in life. It aligns us with our aspiration. It constantly develops spiritual maturity. I, I have in my notes here that it ensures success if you're patient and if your time frame is long enough. <laughs> but we might ask, well, what is it that prevents this resolve of our aspiration? Sometimes our resolve is contaminated by doubt. Sometimes we just wander, waver, meander, perplex, confused, where we begin many things and end few where our confidence is weak and we really don't know if this is the way we want to go. It's common. But you all have done a retreat. You all know the value of awareness. You all have seen for yourself already the value of the Dharma in your life. There may be some doubts left but we need to acknowledge what we do know. Years ago, when I first started Dharma practice, I did a two-week retreat back in 75. And for the next couple of years, I didn't do anything, didn't practice, didn't know anybody who meditated, didn't, didn't do anything. But when the meditation center in Massachusetts was bought, I recognized the opportunity and decided I wanted to go to be on staff. So I... I went to the, the center and got on staff. And one of the first days I was there, I was working up in the attic with another now Dharma teacher, Rodney Smith from Seattle. And we were, you know, 
I had done, by this time I'd done two two-week retreats, and we were having a discussion about Nibbana, and, <laughs> and I said to him, as he reminded me a few years ago now, that I said, I have no doubt that in this lifetime I'll realize the Dharma. <laughs> of course, I had no idea what I was saying. I wasn't knowledgeable enough to, to have fear and doubt about it. I was clear about the direction I was going, even without knowing what was involved. And for all of us, this is possible. Not know what is involved, but be resolute in our commitment and our determination to face whatever is involved and deal with it. Sometimes our practice of aspiring to our uh, vision of perfection or the vision of ourself as a realizing the Dharma, sometimes it's just contaminated by laziness. We just, we don't know what's involved and we don't really want to know. <laughs> because laziness is just a lack of energy. I say just a lack of energy. But it's a, uh, a weakness of the fire in the mind to burn up obstacles. Now, I asked Joseph for permission uh, at dinner to tell a story. Um, as you know, Deepama, Deepama was an extraordinary yogi. Even in her first day of retreat, extraordinary, first week of retreat, enlightened. She had this just tremendous uh, concentration and at one point near the end of her life, she said to Joseph, Joseph, you ought to sit for three days. And Joseph realized that she didn't say do a three-day retreat. She meant sit down and get up three days later. <laughs> because she could, and she did. Well, as Joseph reminded me tonight, he just burst out laughing. <laughs> Whereupon she said, don't be lazy. Okay. Now, I'm not telling, I'm not suggesting anybody do that. But it's possible with development of mind and de development of resolve and development of the purity of mind, such things are possible. But it's for each one of us to incrementally grow to that, grow into that capacity, not to overreach, but to understand that it is possible, and it may happen. Sometimes our resolve is contaminated by attachment, where we are limited in our view of what's possible, or where we are attached to our spiritual practice as some form of personal accomplishment. If you see your spiritual practice as a personal accomplishment, it really will not be satisfying. Sometimes we're just in a hurry, attached to impatience and just demanding that our Dharma practice perform for us. It also can be attachment to results. Sometimes we come on retreat and 
in spite of our best efforts at just being with the way things are, we have a hidden agenda. We want some confirming experience that we're doing it right, that we're improving, that we're getting better, that we understand something. And that attachment gets in the way of the commitment to do what's necessary moment by moment to fulfill the Dharma path. True resolve has no attachment to result. Again, I was practicing in, in Burma with um, Saito Bandita, and at a certain point in practice, after some uh, success or some experience in Vipassana practice, I was doing jhana practice or concentration practices, and uh, one of the tools for developing a concentrated mind is to develop this quality of mind, resolve. Now, resolve is not willpower. Resolve is steadiness of mind. When the mind is pure, free of greed and aversion, delusion, there is this capacity in the mind to be steadfast. And it can be cultivated, just like muscles in the body that you may not know about and may not be very well developed, but through training you can develop them and then they become available to you in the rest of your life. Well, so too is resolve a mental muscle that can be developed. And one of the ways that you develop it is to ask your mind to respond in a certain way. You know, may my mind do this, may my mind do that. And of course, in the beginning, it's very easy. May my mind be mindful, <laughs> may my mind be. But later on, some of what Upandita would ask me to do with the mind, like Joseph, I just burst out laughing. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. It's just impossible. I don't even think, I don't even think it's possible. And he was very, well, that's okay, just give it a try. So I sat down, and I, I made the resolution that he said, may my mind do this. And instantly, the mind did it. Well, I was blown away. I could not believe it was possible. But it confirmed to me what I now am telling you. There is this capacity in the mind to be resolute that is phenomenal. It's a muscle to be developed, a mental muscle that can be developed through practice. And as you develop your practice, it is a great support for the path ahead. Sometimes our resolve, our commitment to the path of awakening is contaminated by aversion. Sometimes we fear what will be demanded of us. And we're weak in our commitment to face it. Sometimes we just get angry at the conditions we meet within our body, within our mind, within our uh, environment. Sometimes we're frustrated with our current limitations. It's common, as many of you know, to just feel frustrated by the habits of the mind. 
they are, they are so persistent and they seem so intractable that sometimes we want to give up. When we do, or when we do temporarily, then aversion has contaminated our resolve. Nevertheless, if we remember the direction that we've chosen, if we've remembered, or if we can remember the benefit of prior practice, we can get back on the path. We can get back on our compass, following our spiritual compass, in order to further develop the spiritual path. Mature resolve I won't say unshakable, but mature resolve is flexible. It's dynamic. It knows the direction. It has a commitment to it. And it's joyful. Joyfully willing to face whatever comes up. Whatever comes up. There was a time in practice, and I know many of us have seen this quality of mind, where it was a joy just to practice, no matter what the challenge. And when there's that level of joy and interest and uh, confidence in the mind, it's almost like the greater the challenge, the greater the joy, the greater the reward. Because every time we meet a difficult situation in practice and we persist, and we remain aware, and we find a way of dealing with it, of being with it, it is a tremendous boost to our self-confidence. This is the path. To take on, in some ways, greater challenges, to succeed, and to support or to bolster the confidence to continue. It's not macho, it's not ambitious, it's very gentle, incrementally accepting what the path reveals to you. In closing, I'd like to just share a story about uh, one Chinese monk whose teaching was on the long-enduring mind, developing the long-enduring mind. It's said that this Chinese monk, the last century, undertook different meditative practices for a decade at a time. You know, a decade of metta, a decade of equanimity, a decade of in, inside, a decade of devotion, a decade of one thing after another, until he was 80, at which time he started teaching. And it's said that he taught for 80 to 120, 40 years, till he was 120, teaching the development of the long-enduring mind. Ah, a long, enduring, exhausted mind. It's possible. It's possible that that story is true. <laughs> and it's possible to develop a, a long, enduring mind. And if we have that willingness and the resolve with the clarity of our direction, then practice is a joy. 
These are the four resolves, the Buddha said, the resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. May we all succeed in those resolutions. Let's just sit for a moment. If by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, the wise pursue that happiness which is greater. <laughs>